So <clears throat> two weeks ago, my firm organized a technology summit for the three to 400 members of our global research and development unit. It was on Zoom, of course, so with my camera off, I had lots of time to vacuum my flat and maybe take a nap or two while presenters were giving their talks. Uh, but one presenter that did catch my attention was our head of information security, a guy named Eric from Colorado, who loves to ski and read books. And he was speaking about how to change our practices to be more secure. So he told a popular story of the scorpion and the frog. You may recall it if you've seen the movie The Crying Game. The story goes that the scorpion was roaming the bank of a river looking for a way to cross over to the other side when he encounters a frog who was also getting ready to cross. The scorpion can't swim, but the frog can. So the scorpion walks up to the frog, trying to look as friendly as a scorpion can, <laughs> and asks, hey there, Mr. Frog, don't suppose you would be so kind as to give me a ride to, on your back over to the other side. The frog replies hesitantly, well now, Mr. Scorpion, how do I know that if I try to help you, you won't kill me? Well, the scorpion replied, because if I kill you, then I would die too, for you see, I cannot swim. This seemed to make sense to the frog, and perhaps he read today's texts about loving your enemies, because he agreed to give the scorpion a ride. So the scorpion crawls onto the frog's back, and they start to swim across the river. Halfway through the river, halfway across the river, the frog feels a sharp sting in his back, and a deadening numbness begins to spread across his limbs. He looked back at the scorpion incredulously and cried, you fool, why did you do that? Now we're both going to die. The scorpion shrugged and said, I don't know, because I'm a scorpion? It's in my nature. In today's gospel, Jesus appears to be challenging us to adopt habits that go against our nature. Love your enemies. Channel your blessings to those who would curse you. If someone takes from you, don't ask for it back. If the children were still here, there would probably be some siblings pointing at each other and drawing inspiration from those ideas. It's not in our nature to live this way, and it seems for very good reason. How many of our ancestors would have survived more hostile times if they had been so selfless? Perhaps we would not exist if our forebears had turned the other cheek in the face of militant aggression. And if we regularly give unconditionally or fail to request the return of our possessions, it won't be long before someone tries to take advantage of us. Many of our natural habits have a reason and do seem to serve a purpose. When I refer to habits here, I'm talking about the things we do instinctively, the judgments we make without thinking, the ideas we understand intuitively. It's like, it's like knowing one plus one is two or recognizing an angry face or many of the decisions we make when driving a car. We can speed up, slow down, stop at a red light, all while engaging in a conversation with someone. We don't have to fully engage our brain, at least for the driving part. The alternative mode of thinking or behavior is more deliberate, deliberative or effortful, like when solving a complex math problem or when driving and, give me a second to translate this into British, when driving and turning right into traffic. This requires a bit more concentration and deliberate thought. 
And it seems in today's gospel that Jesus is directing us to be more intentional and deliberate in pursuing actions that go against our nature. To be good to those who are unkind to us, to be generous to those who are ungrateful. I don't think this means we must completely disregard our intuition or instincts. We do need both intuitive and deliberative behaviors. I'm imagining a gathering of our ancestors. Suddenly there's a rustling sound that emanates from nearby bushes. Some ponder what that sound may be, and others respond by immediately running away. Those are the ones who survived, and we've inherited their instincts for self-preservation and not turning the other cheek. On the other hand, an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind, as the saying goes. So even at an intuitive level, it makes sense to most of us that selflessness is a desirable trait. The dictionary defines selflessness as concern more with the needs and wishes of others than with one's own. This call to a higher way to be a better person is pervasive in popular culture. It's the sort of thing the wise old sensei would say to his apprentice in a martial arts movie or that parents would encourage from their kids. Or maybe this is just the influence of religious philosophies in general and the teachings of Jesus in particular on our culture. In fact, in today's, today's reading sits in the larger context of a chapter in which Jesus seems to advance ideas that break norms. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He heals people on the Sabbath. He teaches his followers that blessed are you who are hungry poor and weeping. Woe to you who are rich, comfortable, and well-fed. And he declares, do not judge, do not condemn, forgive, give. As incongruent as some of these ideas are to our lives, we usually read these passages with a strong sense of aspiration. Surely the best among us are selfless. Surely none of us is selfless enough. So there's this tension between how we behave based on our instincts and how we aspire to behave. Returning to the story I started my talk with, Eric, our head of information security, was basically suggesting that we, the engineers, are the scorpions, harming our customers because we don't always take software security very seriously. Instead, our nature is to quickly produce and ship new features, building up lots of technical debt along the way. And this is good up to a point, because if we don't create value, we go out of business. But eventually, this technical debt can actually weigh down our business and prevent us from creating any customer value. Perhaps what Jesus is really doing here is calling us to examine our instincts, to weigh them, and ask whether we need to rewire our brains to develop new instincts and new habits. Because being intentional and acting against our nature takes effort, and we naturally prefer to do things that are effortless. The good news is that deliberate, effortful actions can become efficient habits with practice. Let's try something real quick. I'd like for everyone where we are sitting to cross your arms. Now try crossing them the other way the opposite hand on top. How does that feel? Does it feel unnatural, weird? 
It's almost like our habit of crossing arms a certain way is backed by a superhighway of neurons in our brain, but folding them the other way is like taking a back alley through an unfamiliar neural pathway or something like that. But if you practice folding your arms the unnatural way, it becomes less weird over time. Perhaps not replacing your natural instinct, but becoming less uncomfortable. Another example is driving, since I'm giving lots of driving analogies today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, much of what we do when we drive becomes intuitive after years of practice. But if we find ourselves in a situation where we're skidding, performing the right action feels unnatural. We're supposed to you know, not hit the brakes and turn into the skid, which is the opposite of what feels natural. But people who live in areas where there's lots of snow or Formula One drivers get used to driving into the skid and are able to do it instinctively. Um, so Professor Wendy Wood at the University of Southern California is considered a leading expert on the, habit, on the science of habits. And she defines a habit as a mental shortcut that we learn over time as we repeat a behavior and reliably get a reward or some positive experience. She identifies three bases for habit formation, context, repetition, and reward. So for example, those of you who drink coffee every morning, walking into the kitchen in the morning is often all the context you need to trigger this habit. You don't ask what to make or why, you just start making coffee. You use the same process every day, repetition, so you don't have to think about how, and the reward is it helps you kick off your day. Many of us learn good habits as kids thanks to repeated prompts by parents to say thank you or excuse me. Uh, we're trying to apply these same principles to develop habits around being good to someone who is unkind. Maybe the context is a particular work activity with a coworker you don't like. Repetition of kindness can lead to forming a positive habits around this. And perhaps the reward will be a better work environment. Or perhaps in another context, it's a relationship at home where forgiveness is often needed. Taking the effort to forgive repeatedly could lead to a change in paradigm, a better understanding of the dynamics of the relationship and ultimately to improved relations. Or maybe it never becomes completely comfortable or instinctive. Maybe it always requires some deliberative effort. It seems the other aspect of what the Lord's call in today's gospel is is for us to go the extra mile. After all, saying thank you when you receive a gift is something even the sinners do, to borrow the phrasing in this passage. Other spiritual practices like prayer, meditation, and community also help us to develop distinctive habits, to develop our posture of giving to our local community, of serving and caring, filling in the gaps to bring about the kingdom of God here in our time. And then there's the issue of the rewards of the kingdom. When Jesus directs us to love our enemies, to do good, and lend, and expecting nothing in return, he goes on to propose that our reward will be great, that we will be recognized as heirs of the king, the most high, that the measure we give will be the measure we get back. I've always struggled with this idea of a heavenly reward, of a great blessing that is somehow earned with good deeds. To be honest, it kind of feels a bit like a corrupt quid pro quo. Like, you know, one can give to the homeless or 
donate to the church as some sort of retirement contribution that you can withdraw tax-free in in heaven. Uh, I imagine arriving at the pearly gates and before St. Peter can say a word, I whip out a long roll of paper and say, just in case your angelic accountants have lost track, I've carefully cataloged all my good and selfless deeds. Now, which villa do I get up here? (laughs) Well, the reward reference in this passage is certainly not that, but we still have to confront this principle. In giving, we receive. I would suggest that what we might receive from our acts of selflessness is not always obvious or apparent at first. We see hints of this in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament reading. You remember the story, he was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and went through alternating cycles of tribulation, elevation. It's interesting to note here that there's many stories of violence or extreme discord between brothers in Genesis, starting with Cain and Abel and Esau and Jacob, and the violence flowed to Joseph. It's almost as if it was in their nature for these siblings to become rivals. But now Joseph has a chance to break the cycle of violence. But if you recall in the story, he seems to dither like he's of two minds. His brothers don't recognize him anymore, and he doesn't immediately reveal his identity to them. Instead, he conducts a series of tricks or tests, locking some of them up briefly, secreting their payments of silver back into their sacks of grain so they look like thieves, and demanding that they bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, back to Egypt against their father's wishes. It's like Joseph is wrestling with his nature and toying with the idea of repaying them in kind for their dastardly deed. If this was a typical Hollywood revenge movie, Joseph's first act upon rising to power would have been to send an expedition to find and punish his brothers long before the famine brought them to his steps. If that was Joseph's instinct, He doesn't follow through it on on it right away. Instead, he waits, and eventually, overcome with emotion, he reveals himself to them. His posture is not retribution, but forgiveness, reconciliation with his brothers, restoration, uh, his reward is reconciliation with his brothers, restoration for his father, and salvation for his whole family in the midst of the famine. So like the scorpion, we have our nature, we will do what we do, and respond the way we respond because we're wired that way, and many times that's probably okay. But today, God calls us to examine ourselves and our habits and consider if we should adopt practices that lead us to develop new habits, new habits that separate us from the crowd and make us more giving and forgiving that we may receive not villas in the sky, but unexpected memories, healed relationships, and new life as children of the Most High God. Amen.